Hi, this is Pastor Mike from Compass in Monterey County. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I hope it encourages you and gives you confidence that Jesus is by your side and that his plans for you are to bless you. That we don't like to hear something doesn't make it untrue, does it? Like a doc coming to his patient and telling him he's got to change his habits. His cholesterol is out the roof and he's smoking like a chimney. And the doc tells him, if you don't change some habits, you're going to die early. Now, he might not like what the doc is saying, but all the doc is doing is shedding the truth of medical science upon his lifestyle. And showing him, as much as he doesn't like it, he's got to change these habits or pay the consequences of them. Me, is for me, I want a doc who tells me the truth, even if I sometimes don't like what he tells me. Now, when you understand that, you understand this series that I'm doing on Christianity Uncensored. Because Jesus sometimes tells us things we don't want to hear. But it's because he wants to save us. So in this series, I've talked about some of the teaching of Jesus that is entirely politically incorrect and very unpopular in a world full of religions today. And I'm coming today, this morning, to what has to be the most unpopular of all the unpopular teachings Jesus gave. And that's what Jesus taught about hell. Now it's hard for me even to say the word hell. There is no part of Jesus' teaching that I would rather remove than this part of his teaching. Plenty of preachers are removing it. They're censoring Jesus and Christianity and saying hell doesn't exist. A couple of years ago, I was talking to another pastor, and she said that she and her congregation were far too educated to believe in hell. Well, I have degrees from Stanford, Princeton, done sabbaticals at Oxford, Hebrew University, and I don't consider myself uneducated. And I certainly don't consider some really, truly mental giants like Augustine, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, and many other preachers and theologians who believe Jesus. The reason I believe that hell is a reality is because Jesus teaches me it is so. Sometimes, you know, people will say, you know, if a preacher mentions hell or even preaches about it, he's a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. I'm not a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. If you're around here very much, you know I preach about grace and about forgiveness and about hope and about how we can solve problems in our life through Christianity. But if talking about hell means you're a hellfire and brimstone preacher, then Jesus was the king of them all. Because a lot of people don't realize that Jesus talked far more about hell than he did about heaven. In fact, more than any other person in the New Testament, Jesus talks about hell. It's not to scare us. 
It's to just tell us reality, reality like a doc tells us. You're smoking like a chimney. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to tell you there's consequences to save us. Of course, the loud objection is that people protest this. They don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. In fact, a loving God wouldn't even allow hell to exist. I believe that's a worthy objection. And it's an objection we need to think about whether or not it's true. And that's what I'd like to do with you this morning. And I think in the first thing to decide is whether or not Jesus was loving. That's pretty important. If a loving God wouldn't send anybody to hell or even allow it to exist, and since Jesus is the one who teaches us about hell, we've got to decide whether or not he was loving. So how loving was Jesus on a scale of 1 to 10? Well, he forgave people no one else would forgive, like the woman caught in adultery whom everybody else wanted to stone to death. He healed people that others wouldn't even touch, like lepers. He forgave Peter for betraying him when he most needed him and for cursing his name. And many people don't know that the first century was one of the most racist centuries in history in the Mediterranean area. Romans against Greeks, Greeks against Jews, against Ethiopians, the wealth against the slaves and the poor people. Women were demoted. Jesus welcomed all of these groups. There was no one he didn't welcome. You know, even people, rational people, who deny Jesus' claims to be God will say Jesus was a great teacher. And yes, he was one of the most loving people in history. And think about this. Do you know anybody who would die to save you? Save your life? In fact, I think we ought to take a little poll here. Men, just raise your hands if you are certain your wife would die to save your life. Raise your hand, let me see. One in the whole place? Two. The rest of you have missed a great opportunity to score points. Let me ask you again. How many of you are certain your wife would die to save your life? This is really sad. I know what people are thinking. Not after what I did last week. It depends on the day, doesn't it, whether or not she would die for me. Jesus Christ died for you. When you were totally against him. You have never been loved. Like you've been loved by Jesus Christ. He died to save you. Really Jesus scores a 10 on being the most loving person in history. Now it might surprise you to know that this loving Jesus who is God. Who came from heaven from the other side is the one who actually introduces the teaching of hell into the Bible. A lot of people don't know this. The Old Testament does not mention hell. Gehenna, the Greek word for hell, is not in the Greek Old Testament. 
It talks about Sheol, kind of a netherworld, but no place like the misery of hell. No place like hell. It's Jesus who introduces that idea into the Bible and teaches it. He describes hell as a place of endless fire. Now people misread this as if God is joyfully barbecuing people in hell. You know, you see pictures, if you go on the internet, of people dangling over the flames of hell. That is a complete misreading of the Bible. Jesus uses fire as a metaphor to help people understand what they have never experienced. We use metaphors, figures of speech, to help people understand what they have never experienced. We don't mean these metaphors to be taken literally. We mean them to be symbolic to help people compare it to some other experience they've had to understand what they have never experienced. Now, people right away are going to say, you don't take the Bible literally. I do. I take all of the Bible literally. But when you come to a metaphor or a piece of poetry, like in the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, you have to take the metaphor literally to mean what the metaphor means. Let the Bible mean what it means. And so when you come to the book of Revelation, you see Jesus sitting, described as sitting on the judgment seat from which, before which we must all appear and to have our life examined. And Jesus on the judgment seat is described as having seven eyes. Now, is he some sci-fi figure in heaven? The Bible doesn't mean he literally has seven eyes placed across his body. In the numerology of the Bible, seven is always the metaphor, the symbol for perfection. So, creation was done in seven days and it was perfectly good. It's the symbol of perfection. And what this means is... You're not going to be able to hide anything from Jesus at the judgment day. There won't be anything you can deny that you really did because he sees everything with perfection. The other place, Jesus says Christians are to be as doves. He doesn't mean we start laying eggs. He means gentle as doves. So you come to fire. It's not literal. And I'll tell you, the other reason we know it's not literal is because Jesus in the same passages will describe heaven as utter, complete darkness and fire. Fire would light the place up. It couldn't be dark. He deliberately mixes metaphors here to tip us off. He's speaking symbolically here. So what's this symbol mean? Well, fire is just about the worst way to die in the world. It's utterly miserable and painful. And what he's saying here is hell is the ultimate misery place in the universe. And that's why he says 
Do whatever it takes to avoid this place. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your arm. Whatever. This is extremism. It's hyperbole. To make the point. You don't want to be there. Take it seriously. This is what is so awful. About jokes that are made about hell. And I hear this a lot. Oh, I don't want to go to heaven. None of my friends are going to be there. I want to be with my friends in hell. No, you don't. You don't know what you're saying. You don't want to be there. That's why we can't afford to be wrong about our choice. You see, a thinking person has to ask themselves this question. I don't want hell to be real. But then was Jesus wrong when he taught about its reality? It's a pure and simple question. Was Jesus wrong when he said hell is real? I'm telling you, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, then you can say Jesus was wrong. But if you're a Christian, bedrock principle in Christianity is Jesus is never wrong. He's God. And you see, if he's wrong about what he teaches about hell, then what else is he wrong about? Suddenly, it all collapses like a house of cards. Not only do we not know what else not to believe, but he's not God. Because God is never wrong. You see, you can't go cherry-picking through Jesus' teaching like melons, thumping on which one of them sounds good. If Jesus was wrong about anything that he teaches, especially about heaven and hell, then he's not God. Another question that a thinking person must ask is this. Was Jesus bluffing? Was he bluffing? In our scripture reading this morning, I hope you realize that Jesus is very serious in trying to save Nicodemus from hell. That's what this whole passage is about. He wants Nicodemus to know he's in real danger. He's got a real problem after he dies. One of the things we've got to understand about Nicodemus is he had it made in life. He had it made. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, the text tells us. And a Pharisee was a person who was totally committed to God. Their whole life was committed to God. You couldn't find a person who was more religious than a Pharisee. Not only that, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel that judged all matters. Only 71 men could be part of that. It was the elite of the elite of Israel. Not only was he in the elite, he was respected as just about the best of the good people. I mean, he was a good man. And best of all, he was filthy rich. Everyone in the Sanhedrin was filthy rich because they got a cut of all the uh, money changers as they were cheating people by charging too much for exchange rates. 
And as they overcharged for animals to be sacrificed, that you could only use their animals in the temple, no one else, you couldn't bring your own, they got the cut. And so everyone who was a member of the Sanhedrin lived up on the hill in the luxury places, just like today. The rich live on the hill generally. When my tour goes to Israel, we're going to go to one of the Sanhedrin person's houses. And you'll see in the tile work and all the rest, the luxury they lived in. Nicodemus didn't have any problems. He was the elite. He was wealthy. He was a good man. Totally committed to God. But Jesus says to him, you may not have any problems in this life, but you got a big problem in the next life. Nick doesn't think he has a problem in the world, but Jesus tells Nick he has a big problem in the next world. This is so important. Because a lot of us think that because we don't have any problems right here, or our friends we know don't have any problems... They don't need Jesus. They got a big problem on the other side of death. Jesus says to Nick, listen to this, John 3, 3. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. Not making this up. No one can see heaven unless he's born again. You must be born again. And I underlined the word must because Jesus is saying, and you must be born again. And if you're not Nick, you're not going to be in heaven. Now, Nick here asks, how can he re-enter his mother's womb? And Jesus, of course, says he's talking about spiritual birth, where we're reconciled to God. We're reconstructed in our attitudes, and we get rid of sin. Our sin is forgiven, and we are transformed and changed. Because we've got to know this is a rock-bottom truth. Rebellion separates me from God. As a rebel, I can't walk hand-in-hand with the holy God. My sin separates me. That spiritual birth, when I'm forgiven, when I'm reconciled to God, and when I start to change by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus uses the strongest possible Greek word here for must. He had several to choose from, but he chooses the strongest. And this is the same word must When he later says that he must die on the cross for our salvation, to pay for our sins. Must. There is no other way. Must. And he's saying to Nicodemus, there's no other way for you to go to heaven unless you are born again. Now you've got to get into this. Nicodemus is admired and envied by virtually everyone. He is stunned. What he's really thinking there is, you mean I'm not good enough with all that I've done to serve God? And I'm not good enough? I'm better than anybody else I know. Jesus completely stuns him by saying, Nicodemus, you're in a total crisis. 
you're not good enough. This is part of this um, objection that I often hear. Don't good people automatically go to heaven? Jesus tells Nicodemus, no. Now why is that? Because you take a person, you, you're good people. Meaning we don't have any axe murderers here, do we? We'd like to know that. (laughs) You're good people. But there's not a person here, I don't think, who would say, I'm perfect. Anybody? Go. You can raise your hand, that's okay. We love to have perfect people. Because if you raise your hand, I want to talk to your ex-girlfriends. My high school had a reunion last year. No way am I going back to that high school. <laughs> I don't want to meet those ex-girlfriends because I was a bad, bad guy. I don't want to go back there at all or see them ever again. I'd like to talk to your ex-girlfriends, your ex-wives, people you work with now, people you used to work with, people you buried in your relational graveyard who are no longer your friends. You know, when we say, well, nobody's perfect, we use that a lot to excuse ourselves. No, I'm not perfect. Just exactly what are we thinking of when we say we're not perfect? I mean, you're 40 years old. How many things are on that list that say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. What have you done that you can no longer say you're perfect? We don't like the S word. But it's true whether we like it or not. We have sinned. And you start looking, you're 40 years old, you're 30 years old, you got a lot of stuff on that list. A lot of stuff. That's why you can't say you're perfect. That's why when a person says, well, don't all good people go to heaven? I want to see your list. We all need the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. It's now that Jesus says his most famous words in the Bible to good old, rich, good person, religious person, Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. He's talking hell, the fire of hell, the misery of hell. There's two places where you perish and but have eternal life. There are two places on the other side, which one will you be in? What does Jesus want to save Nicodemus from? From hell. Now here's the question every thinking person has to answer. Here it is. Did Jesus die on the cross for nothing? Was it unnecessary? Because you see, if people who think they're good automatically go to heaven, then they don't need Jesus. 
And that's exactly what legions of people think. Because they're not looking at their list of imperfection. If good people automatically go to heaven, then Jesus is superfluous. He's irrelevant. He's unneeded. You know what's worse? Then Jesus was a fool. Because he believed if he did not die upon the cross, we wouldn't be saved. He prayed the last night, if it be possible, Father, let me not die on the cross. And the Father said, no, you must be done. He said, thy will be done. He must die on the cross. He was a fool. If you can be good enough without him to go to heaven. I don't think Jesus was a fool. Legions of people believe hell does not exist. But here's my question to anyone who doesn't believe in hell. If you don't believe Jesus about hell, to whom will you go for more reliable information? Who's your more reliable source of information than Jesus? Some PhD book on the bestseller list of the New York Times that says what we want to hear? Or is it just you? You'll think it up yourself. You're your more reliable source of information. You know, when people say, well, I believe what I believe, I want to ask them what their grades were in high school. Tell me how you did in physics and calculus. And you're betting eternity on what you thought up. No, I'm going to Jesus for reliable information. So I'm asking you, have you been born again? Have you ever invited Jesus Christ to come in to be your Savior, to be your Lord, and to reconstruct you? To become a changed person? Your answer is pretty important to that. Because your destiny, eternity, depends upon it. I think it's tragic that unbelievers do not believe Jesus about hell. But I think far worse is that many people who believe in Jesus don't believe him when he talks about hell. They don't believe in hell either. Even though their Lord teaches it over and over. And so what happens when we don't believe in hell, we look at our friends, we look at people we work with, and they got a pretty good family, pretty good marriage, they drive, you know, the, the biggest Mercedes maybe, and, you know, they got good jobs. They don't have any problems. They don't need Jesus. They got a big problem on the other side. But so many Christians aren't desperate To talk about Jesus to unbelieving friends. Bring them to FPC where they can hear the good news about Christ. Share their faith about Christ. Because it's so urgent. I want to show you just a short clip of a person among us in this church who believes Jesus is never wrong. And this is what she did about it. 
My name is Judy Bunker. My husband Jerry and I have been coming to FPC since 1997. My dad wasn't a believer and he was seeing the change in my life that was making the difference since my husband and I had been coming to church. I started giving him Pastor Mike's DVDs about four years ago and he really enjoyed them. He started asking for more. Well, on May 16th of this year, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And the thing that really was such a privilege is that on May 31st, my dad called him into my dad called me into his room and he was sitting on the side of his bed. And he said, "Judy, I'm afraid. I don't know where I'm going to go." And I said, Dad, would you like to accept Jesus Christ into your life? And he said, yes. And we sat on the side of his bed, and my father accepted Jesus Christ into his life. And we just prayed and held each other. And when he was done, he said, I'm going to see my mama and my daddy. And I said, yes, you are, Dad. And to share something like that with anybody, to know that you've got that is, it's life-changing. My mom and dad have been divorced for over 30 years, but they've remained friends throughout the years. And the night my dad accepted Jesus Christ into his life, I, I called my mom because I wanted her to know. I was... I was just so thrilled that he had done that, you know, because I knew that I was going to be in heaven with him someday. The thought of the thought of hell scares me because I know it's real. I've read it in the Bible. And I want my family with me. I want my friends with me. And I have had the privilege of my mom recently accepting Jesus Christ into her life and being next to her when she did it at the women's Samuel cast with Beth Moore and so I feel like I have been the most blessed person in this world to have my father and my mother both with me when they accepted Jesus Christ because I know where they are going and I know that I'm going to be with them for eternity I have so many other family members that aren't believers and I buy Pastor Mike's DVDs, I send them to him, I go to their house and there's dust on them, but I'll never stop sending him those DVDs because it will take just one sometimes for them to watch and I always let them know that it's what's in my heart and I, I want to share that with them because I the thought of losing somebody to hell scares me, scares me. Yay God for her and what she's done. It's really important for us to understand that Jesus doesn't threaten people with hell any more than a doctor threatens a patient with death. He just says, here's reality, make your own choices. Now there's a second powerful reason why I know hell exists. Not only does Jesus teach me it exists, 
But hell must exist because we've been given free will. We have the freedom to make choices. God has made himself resistible. He doesn't force us to love him. Because it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't mean anything. He doesn't force us to surrender him to him as Lord or to obey him. That's a choice we must freely make. And because we have a choice, there must be a place for people who choose against God. Who choose to be rebels against God's authority. So, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in our scripture reading, John 3. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness. See, he's using metaphors again. Light is the will of God. Darkness is rebellion. It's living away from God. But men love darkness, their sinful ways, instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Haven't you met people like that? They don't want to hear the truth about their temper, about their attitudes, because they don't want to be exposed as doing what's wrong. They want to keep on doing it. They don't want to hear the truth. That's what he's talking about. This is a choice we make. Do we want to be in the light or in the darkness? So people choose to rebel against God's light. That is the authority. Now the light is a symbol for the word of God. The Bible. All through the Bible. Light is a symbol of God's presence and word. <clears throat> and so in Psalm 119 uh, verse 105 your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. They hate light. They don't want to be around God, so they choose darkness. And here's what Jesus says hell is. Outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why outer darkness? Why not just say it's darkness isn't that dark enough? No, it's outer, meaning God is completely absent. There's not a sliver of light. It's far away from God. He is totally absent from this place. That's why when a person says, I don't believe God tortures anybody in hell, say, I don't either. Because God is not in hell to torture anybody. It's a place of self-torture. There comes a point where God gives rebels who hate the light, his word, he gives in to them. He doesn't strive with them anymore. He lets them have their way. There comes a time when if we won't say to God, thy will be done in my life, he'll say, then your will be done in your life. Have it your way. Just keep on in the darkness. I'm not going to fight it anymore. Revelation 22 describes heaven as a holy city. There's no evil in city. There's no souvenirs of darkness in our life. Because heaven wouldn't be heaven if you could take your sin in there and keep hurting people. There are people who want to keep their sin. They want to keep in rebellion. They don't want to change. They choose not to go to heaven. Because that's a place of complete light. 
where the will of God is done. Because we are free to rebel against the authority of God, there has to be a place in this universe for rebels to go. Just think about it. Human free will requires there to be hell. There has to be a place where people say, I don't want anything to do with God. And God says, okay, have it your way. The place of utter darkness. And that's why there was a time when hell did not exist in the universe. Did you know that? Hell was not part of God's original creation. When he finished creation, he looked at it and said, it's all good. Hell didn't exist because rebellion in hell is not good. Hell didn't exist. Hell came into being. When that moment came, when his chief, most beautiful angel, Lucifer, the devil, who became the devil, demanded that he be worshipped instead of God. He wanted to move God off the throne and for him to be God. And he was thrown out of heaven. Thrown out of heaven. Because no rebel can be in heaven where God rules. At that moment, there had to be a place for the devil to go and his angels with him. And hell came into being. Didn't exist before. Paul three times in Romans says, Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires. God just says, okay, have it your way. There comes a point when God stops battling rebels and he lets them separate from him. You ever been around a person who's just selfish? A person who loses their temper, verbally abusive. A person who holds grudges. A person, you know, is just hard on people. And they don't feel any guilt over it all. They never ask for forgiveness for anything. And you know, life is tough around them. They hurt people. Ever been around a person that hurts people? You've had a whiff of hell. That's what hell is like. Where God just says, okay, do it your way. I heard about a teacher, 49er fan, and a lawyer who died and wound up at the gates of heaven. Guess what happened to the 49er fan? Let me tell you. God looked at him and he said, you can come into heaven, but you have to answer one question first. And he looked at the teacher and he said, Name the ship that hit the iceberg and sunk and they made a movie about it. The teacher said, the Titanic. He said, teacher, you can come into heaven. Then he said to the 49er fan, he said, how many people died on the Titanic that night? Luckily, he was a, you know, a, a, a statics buff. A stats buff. He loves stats and he knew the answer. 1,228 people. He said to the 49er fan, amazingly, you can come into heaven. (laughs) And then he looked at the lawyer and God said to the lawyer, what were the names of each one of the 1,228 people? (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Lawyers can come into heaven. 49er fans can come into heaven. Republicans, Democrats, it doesn't matter. 
Except no rebels. No rebels. You finally have to surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ and ask for your sins to be forgiven and you changed. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus was trying to evangelize this good man Nicodemus and say, you don't have any problems in this life. you got a big problem in the next life. Will you be one of whoever believes? He's trying to save him. Just as he's trying to save us this morning. I don't believe a good and loving God would send anybody to hell. Neither do I. You have to choose to walk over the crucified body of Jesus to go to hell. You have to want it. And not want to be in heaven. Revelation 3 verse 21 says, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart this morning, knocking and waiting for you to open the door for him to come in and for you to be born again. Will you do that? He's knocking. He won't force his way in. You've got to open your life to him to be born again. Have you ever been born again? Ever invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior? John Westfall tells about when he was an assistant pastor in a large church in Washington. And he was assigned the pastoral prayer one Sunday's worship service. It had been a terrible week at home, he said. He'd gotten so angry that his wife flew into a rage. He said some really bad things to her and rammed his fist through the wall. When he got up to pray that Sunday morning, something came over him. And he got real honest. And this was the prayer he prayed. Almighty God, you know how I've been such a jerk at home this week. You know I was angry at my wife and I shoved my fist through the bedroom wall while yelling at names at her. I ask your forgiveness and for you to change me from being a hothead and a jerk to a man with more self-control. Amen. (laughs) There were a thousand people in church that morning. You could have heard a pin drop for a pastor to pray that prayer. You know what happened? That afternoon, contractors called him and offered to fix his wall for free. (laughs) And honesty broke out into that congregation of self-examination. And people stopped using the behavior of others as excuses for their behavior. And they started getting honest about the fact that, no, they're not perfect. And that's part of the problem. They're part of the problem. And change began to break out in those marriages and in those families because people got honest about their sins. S word, we don't like it, but it's still true. We need to be saved. On the screens you see my famous slippery slide. And let me tell you what happens. You know, the first times you lie 20 years ago, you're still in control. The first time you cheat, the first time you're selfish, you still feel in control. And you're at the top of the slide up here. But you know, the more times you do it, the more self-control you lose. And you do this enough over the years, you lose your temper, you become a griper, 
a complainer, negative, you lose control of your tongue and you say things that are hurtful. And after a while, you're at this point in the slide, you're in free fall. You're in free fall. You no longer rule yourself. Sin rules you. You need to be saved from yourself. And all over this worship center today, there are people who are on the slippery slide. Some of you are up here, and a lot of you are right there. The fact is, you can't stop. So I'm asking you to come to Jesus Christ and to be born again. Do you want to be born again and go to heaven and to be set free from the slippery slide now? More than to be forgiven. To have supernatural power from Jesus. To get off the slide. Where are you on this slide? Honestly. You can't stop. H.G. Wells called himself a walking civil war. He said his best self was fighting his worst self. He was on the slide. Where is that for you? And your worst self is winning out too much. I'm sure that some of us have had the whiff of hell in our home already. We've been rebels a long time. We're far down on this slide on the screen. With our tongue, our eyes, our attitudes. We need a savior this morning to get off the slide. I'm going to ask you to be born again. I'm going to offer that to you. It's your choice. I'm going to offer you what's your eternal destiny. Are you going to continue to be a rebel? Then heaven is not your destiny. If you've been a Christian, but you've been far away from God, and you're on this slide, isn't it time to come back to God, to confess your sins, and to make it right with God, and restart your Christian life, and to be saved from things here on earth? I'm going to give you that opportunity, but it's your choice. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of Dr. Mike from Compass Church in Salinas. We hope you're encouraged by his practical Bible-based teaching 